our text this morning, once again, are two, and we're making as much speed as I dare through this section of the scriptures, um, in part because it is so countercultural to where we are today and has been really since the 1960s, but we have entered a period of time today where those issues that were raised in the 60s and everyone was angry and disturbed about are being raised again in a very forceful way. And so um, this verse is about as popular as Yasser Arafat at a Jewish bar mitzvah. Um, and, uh, and I told you I've been stressing over this section of the scriptures since we started unfolding Ephesians uh, over a year and a half ago, a year and eight, ten, ten months now. Um, and, uh, and here we are. Um, so, God have mercy. Ephesians 5 and verse 22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and he himself is Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such blemish. I'm sorry, any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. For he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And then from Genesis chapter 3. Now, in past weeks, we've read the whole passage, but we're just going to focus uh, on the curse, uh, particularly the curse of the woman this week. Last week, we focused on the curse of the man. But this is what the Lord says. Uh, I know it just says uh, 16. Yeah, we'll read, just read 16. So, To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, in pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, as I've said, in order to try and help you understand this in a time where it's very countercultural, I've worked very slowly and tried to establish some ideas. The first idea is that there is a fundamental equality between men and women, that in Christ there is no Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free, and yet God says, okay, part of being made in my image is we're going to pretend that there isn't equality and that some are going to be in positions of authority and others are going to be in positions of submission. And the reason why God did that is because that's how he himself runs his life within the Trinity, that the persons of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are equal, and yet the Son submits to the Father, and the Spirit submits to the Father and the Son. And then God makes human beings, and he makes them equal, but he makes the woman to be a helper to the man. Now, the interesting thing is that Jesus calls the Holy Spirit, whom he will send in John, the helper. 
So the, the female has a Holy Spirit-type role within the marriage covenant. And so Adam and Eve, they're living this wonderful life in the garden, and uh, they are, as I said, equal, and yet um, Eve is looking to her husband to do certain things for her, and Adam is in charge of doing certain things for her, and God has given Adam a job, and Eve is to help him with his job. So God is, has made Adam to be centered on the job that he gave and on God in that job, and then Eve is to be focused on him to help him with that job. And then comes the fall, and everything gets messed up. And one day, today, in Christ, those who belong to him are to live things out as they were before, and that's the effect of Ephesians 5. But we'll, we'll try and build that case a little more carefully today. We pick up where we left off last week with the curse of God upon the woman for her role in the fall. Now, by way of review and reminder, let's just recall that there was a fall before the fall, that Satan and his angels fell before Adam and Eve were tempted by him. And the source of his fall, we're told in the scriptures, was pride, at least pride, and perhaps envy as well, because the angels, were told, feel a kind of holy jealousy. The unfallen angels long to look into the things into the mystery of our salvation that God has given us. And so the source of his fall was pride and, and, at least, and perhaps envy, but it was also in his pride just an infatuation with himself. And then he, after he falls, he comes and he spreads his disease to the man and the woman. And his disease has a, a specific symptom profile, which he then transmitted to the man and the woman in different ways. Uh, for Satan, his symptom list went like this. First of all, nobody tells me what to do. I will do whatever I want. So if you, uh, if you find somebody saying that in this world, that there is nobody that can tell me what to do, I will do whatever I want, you can be sure that their father is Satan because they're following after him. They have his character. Second of all, I do not want to do that for which I was created. God said, do this, and I'm going to say, mm -mm. It grows out of number one. You can't tell me what to do, and I'm not going to do that. Third, I will not serve whom I am supposed to serve. Instead, I will conquer these people and rule them, and they will serve me. So I don't serve, others serve me. And fourth, I will never be ruled over by those who are ordained to rule over me, I will be the ruler instead. And ultimately, that includes an effort to dethrone God himself. That's what Satan's after. He wants to kick God off the throne and take his throne because of his pride. Now, as we saw last week, the curse which God pronounced is going to be related both to the role for which God created Adam and Eve that they were supposed to fulfill, and also in the way that each one failed to respond appropriately to the challenges that Satan presented in fulfilling their roles. And remember that we said that the fall culminates in the eating of fruit, which is forbidden, but there's a lot of stuff going on before, and we see that the fall is a complex event, and things start unraveling almost immediately, for instance, when Eve adds to the word of God given to her through her husband and is disobeying God and her husband and is listening to the serpent. So she didn't believe 
what she'd been told. And Satan said, um, he's lying to you. Everybody's lying to you. And she went, okay, that seems plausible. So she didn't believe the word of God. She didn't submit to God or to the authority of her husband. And then she's having this conversation with the snake. And Adam, where's Adam? He's right there with her. And it says in 1 Timothy that he wasn't deceived. So he knew what was going on and didn't protect his wife. Didn't shelter her. Didn't kill the snake or contradict the snake or take her away from the snake. He just let her keep talking. And then when she eats and he realizes that she, he's lost her forever, rather than intercede with God on her behalf, he decides to um, basically commit suicide, and she gives him the fruit, and he eats too, and he dies, because in his mind, this is the best thing God has ever given him, and she is, and life with her, or life without her, is not worth living. So he'd rather die with her than live without her. So this curse then comes upon the man and the woman, and it comes in slightly different ways, even though it's related to Satan's disease. They're manifesting Satan's disease of pride and of rebellion in different ways. And this curse is pronounced on them. Adam, for instance, was created to subdue the creation and to rule the creation. And he was specifically tasked with working the garden, with keeping it. And I told you a few weeks ago that Hebrew word keeping is also the same word used for guarding. When the Lord put a, a cherub in the garden after he kicked Adam and Eve out to guard the garden and keep them away from the, the tree of life, the, the angel was guarding or keeping the tree of life. So it's the same word. So Adam, Adam was to be a worker and he was to be a protector. And, and in his rule over the creation, he would have ruled it with stewardship and with care, with love. He would have taken care that everything was done well and everything was done right. So Adam was the first environmentalist, so to speak. And uh, God so equipped Adam that he was able to do his work with ease and pleasure and productivity. And this was because God was working with Adam and in Adam, and through Adam. And so when Adam was doing all these amazing things, if you had asked him, Adam, how are you able to do this? He would have said what you and I must say if we belong to Jesus and something good happens. It's no, not I, but Christ in me that is at work. But that's all gone with the fall. And Adam has now disconnected himself from God's power in a very significant way because he can no longer be trusted to wield the power of God for its own sake, for the, for the sake of God and for the sake of his task. He's going to be tempted now to use it to glorify himself. And so God takes his power away. But here's an interesting fact. When God creates and calls a being to a position of authority, that being is perpetually obligated to fulfill that God-ordained function. So when God calls you to something, you're responsible until the end to fulfill what God has called you to do, no matter what. And part of the judgment of God will be based on whether a being fulfilled those obligations. And that's true for angels. So for instance, when God, God had appointed angel, uh, Satan, uh, Lucifer, to be probably the highest angel, probably to govern this world, and, uh, and, and Satan falls. And God will hold him accountable for not appropriately ruling this world one day, and his punishment will be to be cast into a lake of fire forever. That's true for angels. It's also true for men and women. 
So, for instance, Paul gives us a principle in Romans chapter 11, and he's discussing the mystery of the rebellion of the Jews, how they didn't receive Christ. And in Romans eleven twenty nine, 29, he says this, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. They're not going to be taken back. They're irrevocable. The gifts and the calling of God are irre- irrevocable. So when God appoints you to a role, you are responsible to God to faithfully fulfill that role, even if other people involved aren't fulfilling that role in your mind. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.17, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. In other words, God ordained me, called me to the apostleship, and gave me this job to preach the gospel specifically to the Gentiles. Later on in the same letter in 1 Corinthians 9, 17, he says, for necessity is laid upon me, and woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. And the word translated there as woe is literally an English adaptation of a Greek word, wa, which means that grief and destruction are imminent. So when someone says, woe is me, what they're saying is bad things are fixing to happen. It's the same thing that Jesus says to the Pharisees in Matthew 23 when he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to make one convert, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Woe, bad things are in line for you very soon. So Paul says that if I don't preach the gospel, I'm in a lot of trouble. Why? Because the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God appointed me to be a pastor teacher. Woe is me if I neglect my call. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God appointed Timothy to play and sing and lead the people of God in worship. Woe to him if he does not fulfill his call, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God gave you, when you were born again, spiritual gifts, and then he called you to this congregation as the place where you will exercise those spiritual gifts to build up the body of Christ. You voluntarily took this responsibility upon yourself with a solemn vow of membership, and God says it's better not to swear than to swear and not do it. It's God says, I love the person who swears and then does it even when it causes them personal harm or inconvenience or difficulty, because the most important thing is that you keep your word and God says, woe to you if you do not do what you have said you're going to do, because the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Well, Adam's call was to tame the creation and to to care for it, and to bring order to it. In turn, by the command of God, the creation cooperated. It didn't resist Adam at every point. And specifically, it brought forth food in abundance. But after the fall, everything's messed up. And yet, that is still his task. Because the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Only now, it's so much harder than it was. Now his face is looking down to the dust because that's where his food's going to come from. The same dust that the serpent has to eat as part of his judgment and curse. And instead, before it was cast upwards to the trees and to the heavens above the trees. 
So his mind was, if he was paying attention, and he always was, his mind was on God who gave the food that's in the trees. Instead, now he's, he's grubbing in the dirt, searching for his bread, scratching out a living. And instead of cooperating with Adam, the ground now produces thorns and thistles. And so he toils for his bread by the sweat of his brow, and the specter of death haunts him every time he looks at that dirt because God says, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So even in Adam's labor, he's reminded death is coming. Your body's going to break down. You're going to keep toiling by the sweat of your face until you draw your last breath, and then your body goes back into that ground because you're dust, and you've messed it up for yourself and everybody else, Adam. Now remember, even in unfallen Eden, Adam was not adequate to his task. He needed a helper. And so God created Eve from his body. The basic picture of marriage then, before sin, was Adam oriented towards God, towards his God-given task, and Eve oriented towards Adam in order to help him with his God-given task because he couldn't do it by himself and he needed help. It was a relationship of mutual cooperation. It was a relationship of joyous partnership with two equals agreeing that one is going to be, as God has ordained, in charge in specific instances, and the other is going to help him with what he's doing. Well, if Adam wasn't adequate to the task before, when the creation recognized him as its master and yielded easily to his hand, how much more inadequate is Adam going to be now in this era of thorns and thistles? He's in a boatload of trouble. He's in a boatload of trouble. How much more would he need a helper fit for him, corresponding to him now? A lot more. Unfortunately, due to the curse of God, now Eve has other things going on in her mind. And part of God's mandate to Adam and Eve, we're told, was to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. Now, obviously, and I have to emphasize this in this day, but that takes two, and obviously it takes male and female, and obviously the female has a much larger role to play in this than the male, because she is the one whom God has ordained to nurture children in her womb, and then she feeds them from her own body for an extended period of time after they are born. And that's still her responsibility today. Why? Because the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Only now, it's much, much harder than it was. Adam's labor is more painful, but Eve's labor is much more painful as well. And he says to her, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. This pain, though, stands for more than just contractions of a uterus or dilations of a cervix. Because there are few creatures more vulnerable in this fallen, dangerous, violent world that Adam and Eve have just 
fallen into, that they've created basically for themselves. There are few creatures more vulnerable than a woman with a baby. Now there are, for instance, predators. The lions were laying down with the lambs and eating straw like the ox before, and they will again in the new heavens and the new earth. But now, all of a sudden, lions are going, I, I think I'm going to eat the lamb instead of laying down with the lamb. Well, there are predators. And there are also human predators coming down the pike. Soon there will be evil, violent men, and we find them in the next chapter. Almost immediately, things go, go wrong. We find evil, violent men who will rape and murder and steal. And so death can come now for the mother or the baby or both. And that risk starts during childbirth and it continues long afterwards. And so she needs her husband to be her protector. And he has already failed at that task. He failed magnificently by not protecting her from the serpent. She didn't trust God. She didn't trust her husband's word to her from God before she ate of the fruit. And she needs him to protect her, and she don't trust him. She trusted the serpent and his word instead, and she took matters into her own hands and did what she thought was best. And now by the curse of God, she's going to keep doing that in spades. In Genesis 3.16, God curses Eve and says, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. The word in Hebrew, which is translated as desire in verse 3.16, is the Hebrew word sequah. And it only occurs three times in the whole Old Testament, and it occurs twice within these two chapters in Genesis, Genesis 3 and Genesis 4. The next place it occurs is some 15 verses later in chapter 4, verses 3 through 8. And if you've got your scriptures open, I'm not sure I had a slide made for this one. Did I have a slide made for this one? I did have a slide made for this one. Genesis chapter 4. Verses 3 through 8. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Your desire will be for your husband, Eve but he must rule over you. Cain, your desire, sin desires to conquer you, but you must conquer it. When God says your desire will be for your husband, it doesn't mean that she's going to chase Adam all over the bedroom every night while he says, not tonight, dear, I have a headache. That's not what that means. Part of the curse 
is a relentless drive to dominate and control her husband precisely because of her anxieties about her safety and well-being now that the world is not a very safe place to be. So she decides, I need to look out for me. I need to be, therefore, the one in charge. Now, does that sound like, the, does that sound like Satan? Nobody's looking out for me. I need to look out for me. I need to be the one in charge. I don't want to do what I was created for. I've got other designs. I've got other ideas. And so she cries to recreate God's purposes for the relationship to suit her. And she sets a task for herself. And she wants the man to be oriented towards her to help her with her task. And all of her tasks are oriented around her experiencing feelings of security and trying to eliminate her feelings of anxiety and vulnerability. But the world is a dangerous place, and death still haunts and stalks her, so they can't really be dealt with for very long by any man. And then she blames him for everything because she thinks she wouldn't feel this way if he did what she wanted him to do. The findings of modern psychological research in this area are fascinating to me um, on, on some aspects of this anyway. It really, I think, helps explain the scriptures. One, there, there are uh, what psychologists call the big five personality traits. They're measured, for instance, by the Myers-Briggs test. But one of the big five is called trait neuroticism. According to the literature, quote, individuals who score high on neuroticism are more likely than average to be moody and experience such feelings as anxiety, worry, fear, anger, frustration, envy, jealousy, guilt, depressed mood, and loneliness. So if you have high trait neuroticism, the, the higher it is, the more you're likely to experience that. Now, both men and women have some degree of trait neuroticism. But the interesting thing is that boys and girls, before they go through puberty, score almost identically on the, on the trait neuroticism scale. But once they go through puberty, all of a sudden, females are much more likely to manifest higher trait neuroticism, and that's true of them for the rest of their lives. Now, why is that? Well, it's because in the fall, things changed, and the female nervous system changed to prepare her for having and caring for a child, an infant who's going to be totally dependent on her for an extended period of time. And so she's physically vulnerable now because men have 60% more upper body strength than women and generally are very aggressive. And so she's sexually vulnerable. She's physically vulnerable. And that vulnerability is enhanced by having an infant to care for. And so to adapt her for her new sin-scarred, more dangerous environment, God gave her a nervous system that is incredibly tuned to threats and danger or even the possibility of threats and danger. And it will be for the rest of her life. And she passes that down to all of her daughters. One of the things I see very often, which didn't make much sense to me until I understood this key difference between men and women, is women who are widowed, um, and they often suddenly become very fearful after their husbands have died in a way that isn't really congruent with their actual situation. So, for instance, I have a friend in her middle 70s 
who I've known and I've worked closely with for almost 30 years. We did youth ministry together in the 90s. We went to Mexico on mission trips and everything else, and she was just this go-getter. I couldn't hardly keep up with her when I was 30, and uh, she was just, just this machine. And her husband was not a well man for years and years before he died of COVID, and she took care of him. And I watched after he died, suddenly this woman who would fly to San Diego and take a group of high school students across the border into Tijuana, um, suddenly she was afraid to drive to a city that was only three hours away that she had literally spent weeks and months of time in in the past. She'd been there often and had spent extended times there. She had a decent car, she had a cell phone, she had plenty of past experience, she wasn't going to a new place, but all of a sudden, now that her husband was gone, she's afraid. She's afraid. And her husband had not been physically strong for the last few years of his life. He would have been hard-pressed to defend her from a mugger or a carjacker. So realistically, she's in no more danger now than she was before he died, but that doesn't matter. How she feels is most important. And I, I watched her because I was going to pay for her and my wife and another woman to, to have a, a time together as a birthday gift for my wife. I watched her struggle against it and fail and finally just give into it and accept it. And now her world is a smaller place than it was because she's afraid. But there really isn't a good reason for her to be afraid or at least any more afraid than she was when her husband was alive. Why is that? That's how God designed the female nervous system after the fall. In order to attempt to manage her anxieties, a woman will look for a man when she wants to choose a mate. She will look for a man with money and social status and physical strength and emotional commitment. And those are the things that Eve's daughters are going to crave. They're going to be focused on themselves in this world. And those are what she looks to by default in order to feel secure. And if she finds someone with enough money and enough strength and enough social status and some emotional commitment, she might even feel secure for a while, but it won't last. It won't last because the way she's wired causes her to constantly test the security system for vulnerabilities. And the man is sitting there, he doesn't even know necessarily that he's the security system. And so he's sitting there like a big derp, happy, watching football, and she starts testing the, the, the security system. And sooner or later, she'll find a weak spot because the best of men are men at best, and most men aren't at their best. And when she finds a weak spot, her anxieties rise. And then she gets mad. She gets mad at the man for making her feel anxious. He has failed her somehow. He has no idea he's failed her somehow. He thinks everything's just fine. And she thinks it's his fault. So she starts badgering him to plug the holes. And he'll put up with it for a little while, but then he begins to resent it. And maybe her tactics for testing the security system seem to the man like arbitrary claims or games or power plays, which you got to admit they kind of are. And so her relentless testing of him and her relentless dissatisfaction with him starts chipping away at his emotional commitment to her. And the way that this manifests itself is it very often in his withdrawal from emotional intimacy, which alarms her 
because there's another hole now in her security system, and it's getting bigger, not smaller. So she doubles down. And so he stiff-arms her emotionally in response. Or he gets angry. Or he leaves her. Or he commits adultery. Or he begins abusing her. And that last one is particularly a wicked part of the curse because part of her security system is his strength and his aggression, his capacity for violence under the right circumstances because she needs to be able to depend on him to defend her from other men and from danger. She needs his strength. And I've told you guys before, ladies, if your man's not just a little bit dangerous, you're vulnerable. You want a man who's just a little bit dangerous under the right circumstances. And the right circumstances would be 3 a.m. when the door gets kicked in. You want somebody that's dangerous then. You don't want Casper P. Milk Toast. Okay? You want a guy with a 40 cow who can put a hole in somebody at 30 feet without blinking. That, amen. Thank you, sister. Amen. Right? <laughs> I remember when my wife and I were first married, we were living in southern Indiana, and it was, I don't know, eight or nine, or nine or ten at night, and I, I would go to bed early because I had to be up at four in the morning in those days. I was in seminary, and there was a noise, and she, her, my wife heard the noise. Now, her side of the bed was next to the doorway. My side of the bed was farthest from the doorway. I had a pistol tucked between the mattress and the box spring. I had that pistol out, and I had vaulted over the bed to the door, and she was like, I have never seen a fat man move that fast in my life. That's my job. I am to protect her. Well, she needs that, right? She needs somebody that's a little aggressive. But that's a double-edged sword in the fall. Because... She's relentlessly trying to control him and test him. His strength and aggression can be one of her biggest threats, a threat to her safety, because aggressive men often abuse their wives and their girlfriends. And the interesting thing is the schizophrenia in the feminist movement. Uh, women will try to eliminate his aggression as a threat towards her by feminizing him by constantly pressuring him not to show aggressive traits. Why do you want to watch these movies where everybody kills everybody else? Because they're training, dear. No, they're violent. Turn them off. I don't like them. She's, she's constantly pressuring him not to hang out with male friends uh, while they do man stuff. You know, she doesn't want him necessarily to go hunting or to shoot guns or to do the martial arts. He's very cool towards those things, because those could be turned against her, right? And if she succeeds in feminizing him and turning him into Casper P. Milk Toast, then she despises him because he's weak, and he's probably not up to the task of defending her from other men. And so she tries to have it both ways, and she can't. There's a conflict built in, and so her whole life is just one of, of some level of anxiety or another. The essence of the curse for Eve is that she is now vulnerable in a way that she wasn't before the fall, and out of that awareness of her vulnerability, she will be driven by an insatiable desire for a feeling of security, and that feeling is not always tied to reality. You know why women like a tentative man? Because a tentative man will pick up on nonverbals and might sense aggression like she does, and be able to 
see, at least see eye to eye on her that there's something wrong with that guy over there. And he thinks, if he's not sensitive, he thinks, well, no, he's fine. He's just standing there. She's like, no, there's something wrong with that guy over there. So she wants a sensitive man. Well, a sensitive man also ends up usually having other traits that are not that helpful. And so she, then she's like, well, you're weak. You're timid. I don't respect you because of it. The last part of the curse says, and he shall rule over you. In other words, Adam's job is to try and manage all of this while still accomplishing his God-given task of feeding his family and subduing the creation, all of which has gotten much, much harder, and she's not much help anymore most of the time. Well, needless to say, Adam's sons are failing spectacular, spectacularly at this task. And so female intellectuals got together and formulated a strategy that just cuts Adam out of the equation. It's called feminism. It's an attempt to eliminate the man from the equation altogether. Gloria Steinem was very famous for saying a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. That's what she said, and she believed it. We're going to create a world where we don't need men for anything. And there are three basic goals which feminist writers and academics have prescribed and are pursuing. The first is the use of political, social, and legal power to create a society where women create their own security system apart from the man. And the interesting thing is her main key for a lot of this is the police force, which is mostly made of men. And so she's really traded the protection of one man who's near to her for the hopeful protection of a bunch of other men who aren't very near at all and probably can't do much and won't come in time. Number two, she wants absolute control over pregnancy and childbirth, and this is especially true concerning abortion, because a baby can keep you from constructing an effective security system for a long, long time. Ideally, there's a, a branch of feminism called the transhumanists who are pursuing things like artificial wombs so that they don't have to bother with pregnancy ever again. And they want then, after the child is born, universal child care. So somebody else will bear the responsibility of raising that child day to day because a baby makes a woman vulnerable in so many ways and feminism at bottom hates children. For this reason. At best, they view children as a necessary evil. At worst, they view them as the whole problem with the world. And that's what's behind this shift in our culture that hates children. You know, it's interesting. I've got a friend who's a PCA minister, and he's got seven or eight kids. I can't even keep track anymore. And, and the, he talks to me from time to time about the comments but he lives in, in Tennessee now, and he doesn't get it as much. But, you know, when he's in Detroit or someplace that's more secular, the comments he gets for having all those children, and they're always critical. Like, what's wrong with you people? Breeding like puppies? He's like, children are a blessing from the Lord. And I love my children. But we've been conditioned to hate them, to view them as an imposition on our pursuit of our own happiness. And they are. They're an opportunity to die to self and to serve the Lord and to pass his word on to a subsequent generation so that they can be with you together forever in heaven. 
The third element of the feminist agenda is the systematic feminization of men, starting at a young age, using the public school system primarily, but also entertainment, music, and all these other things. In the beginning, this manifested itself, and I can remember, because I was an elementary ed major in the 90s, um, labeling every normal boy behavior as psychologically pathological. Seriously. All, no all normal boy behaviors were to be clamped down on in a disciplinary faction because we've got to stop these boys from being boys. And so they, they worked very hard and they were quite successful. More recently, schools have become the target of homosexual activists and transgender activists for precisely this reason. Anything that dilutes or challenges or blurs male identity is put to work in service of the cause so long as it doesn't lead to men in dresses usurping a woman's position. Then they get upset about that. If a boy starts swimming on the girls' swim team or the basketball team, then they, the feminists get upset about that. But everything else is just fine as long as they leave women's sports and they don't get some kind of female affirmative action even though they're not female. Why is that? Because weak Feminized men and homosexuals are no great threat to a woman's safety. They want all that for that reason. Now, this is a presentation of what, of the general case as I understand it, and I've studied it for a long time and I've thought about it carefully and I'm open to modify my theory. I recognize that there are many variations on the theme. The first thing that happens when you start talking like this is you get a bunch of angry women after the service going, what about, what about, what about? Well, there's a lot of whatabouts. And I'm not excusing anybody's bad behavior. I recognize that not everyone in the room will fit exactly into this pattern, but it is a general pattern nonetheless. Please understand that I am trying to explain from the scripture and from scriptural principles how things are and how they got to be that way so that we can, through Christ, go a different direction as the people of God, so that we can live as Adam and Eve would have lived together in the garden had there been no fall. I'm not saying that the way things are now is good or is justifiable or ought to be because things are not manifestly how they ought to be. That is what the fall is about. Things are not as they should be. In Christ, you and I are given the Holy Spirit who regenerates us and pulls us towards sanctification. And part of that sanctification process is that we start to become who we ought to be. And for husbands and wives, Ephesians 5, 22 through 33 gives us a basic blueprint of how husbands and wives ought to be. Now, I don't have time. We'll unfold that in detail next week. But, but let me just ask you to bear with me. And if you've got a Bible, turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. Because there's a lot of women who are Christian women, and they're in a situation for one reason or another where their husband is not going to love her like Christ loved the church. He's not. He may not be a bad guy, may not be beating her up, but he's not going to love her. He's not going to be cheating on her, but he's not going to love her like Christ loved the church. Does the Bible talk to that woman? Yes, it does. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And I just want to highlight a few things out of that passage. 
1 Peter 3, 1 through 6, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, there they are, the guys that don't obey the word, so that even if some don't obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. What's the, what did Paul say back in, in uh, Ephesians 5.33? Wives, respect your husbands. See to it that the wife respects her husband. We're going to talk about that next week. That's, there's actually a difference between men and women as to what their core need is. And God made it this way. And once again, modern psychology has uncovered this. And it's amazing. It's confirming what the scriptures say in certain cases. Let your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So what does Peter say here? What's his advice to the woman who's in a relationship where her husband is not treating her as the word of God requires? First of all, Cultivate a gentle and a quiet spirit. Cultivate a gentle and a quiet spirit. You're not going to fix it by going on the attack. You're just not. Criticism won't help. It'll hurt. It'll keep things from happening that you want to happen. And as a man, I can tell you how that works. I know I should do this. She's been on me like white on rice to do this. If I do this, I give in to her, and she thinks, oh, good, that worked. I'll do some more of it. And so you've got yourself in a position where him doing what he ought to do becomes a situation where if he does it, it makes his life worse. He ain't going to do it. He ain't going to do it. Is it stupid? Is it infantile? Is it wrong? Yes, yes, yes. It's also reality. Just have a gentle and a quiet spirit. You can say what you need, but just say it. Be done with it. Second of all, and this is most important, hope in God. Hope in God, not your husband. Your husband, at best, under ideal circumstances, is simply the means that God normally uses to meet certain needs in your life. In the same way that a job and a bank account are what God normally uses to accomplish what needs to be happening in your life as far as supporting yourself, feeding you. But when the ordinary means are not working out, God always has another way. And that's what he taught the Hebrews in the, in the wilderness, isn't it? There's no food out here. Normally you need like cropland and gardens and water and there's none of that. God, we're going to starve to death. And God says, no, you're not. Here's manna. God, we're thirsty. There's no water in the desert. Yes, there is. Clack. There's the rock. Water comes out of the rock. God provides for his people who look to him. But if you're focused on your husband and what he's not doing that you think he needs to be doing, and maybe that he actually needs to be doing, you're just going to drive yourself to distraction and frustration. 
So put your trust in God, not your husband. And when your husband does come through, say, thank you, God, because it's God that's working through him to do what he's supposed to do. Third of all, do not fear. Do not fear. Fear drives so much of this. Some level of fear and anxiety drives so much of this. And God says there is no reason for the child of God to have any fear. I am with you. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and the waves will not overwhelm you. When you pass through the fire, you will not be burned, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. I give Cush as your ransom and Seba in your stead, because you are precious and honored in my sight, and I love you. That's the emperor of the universe telling you that. Do not fear. So much of this comes out of fear. Do not fear. And you'll be okay. God will take care of you. You will have everything you need until the day you draw your last breath, and then you will go to heaven and never need anything again. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. For you are our rock, and our Redeemer. If I have said anything today that is helpful and good, allow it to stick, Father. If I have said anything today that is unhelpful or false, please, please, cause it to be forgotten.